Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got your stool ready for you here, so we're glad you've joined us. Jim is back from his trip to California and the Reagan Library. If you follow him on Twitter, you saw him looking like James Bond with the Air Force One behind him in Simi Valley, California. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple different things here real quick before we uh, get to our three martinis. First of all, Jim, the Jets win in dramatic fashion again. Uh, you're now 2-2 two and two overall and 2-2 two and two against the uh, AFC North, which is kind of fun. And the Bears lost yesterday to the Giants, but I'm hoping that they got some experience just being in that stadium because, of course, the biggest game of the year is coming the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And what I've noticed, even though we're both 2-2, two and two, we never win the same week. So uh, something's got to give when we meet in, in late November. That's generally how it works, and my suspicion is we'll end up with a tie. <laughs> we'll be, you know, uh, okay, good game. Uh, no, it's great. Uh, actually, by the way, technically the NFL has announced that the Giants beat the Bears, but my understanding is that the Bears are still lateraling that pass. Uh, the you know for the forty-five seconds they went yesterday, they're still lateraling. They just keep going back and forth, passing it. So we'll see how that last play ends sometime next week. You know, some old school coach back in the day would make him lateral it all the way back to Chicago for losing the game, but. Uh, <laughs> We'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, well, both teams are two and two in October, which means it's not hopeless in October, which is kind of rare for us. So, you know, we've at least got some reason for optimism, even if it's not a ton of optimism. But uh, uh, our other item that we're going to talk about here uh, before we head into our actual martinis, and this is proof, uh, first of all, Jim, that you and I are old, uh, but secondly, how quickly time goes. Apparently, it was 20 years ago today that the D.C. sniper spree, which lasted nearly three weeks in Maryland and D.C. and and Virginia, uh, unfolded uh, in this area. I had been here for a few years. You, of course, had been as well. And, of course, it was roughly a year after 9-11 this is happening. So uh, we had already been on edge for a while about what could be coming that we wouldn't expect. And all of a sudden, you know, this turns out not to be a terrorist attack, but uh, a man named John Allen Muhammad and this teenager he befriended named Lee Boyd Malvo, uh, driving all the way across the country, killing a few people in the south along the way, and then coming up here uh, on this very day, they killed five people in Montgomery County, Maryland, then they killed someone in D.C., and then Manassas and Falls Church and uh, down closer to Richmond and then I think back again uh, into Maryland and so forth. Uh, the working theory eventually was that uh, he was trying to kill his ex-wife. Muhammad wanted to kill his ex-wife and uh, figured with all these other sniper issues, they wouldn't tie it back to him. But uh, ultimately, they got greedy. They wanted money. And so they got a bead on him. And then finally, a trucker found him at a truck stop in the middle of the night uh, up in Maryland. So, uh, Jim, for me anyway, it was far more uh, stressful than actually the days after 9-11, which were plenty stressful, too. Uh, You think going to get gas now is stressful because of the cost. Uh, Back then, uh, people were getting actually shot at the gas station. They were saying, you know, look out for white vans. And that's when you realized just how many white vans there were. So um, 20 years ago, obviously glad they're caught. Muhammad was executed. Malvo is going to stay in prison, hopefully for a long time. Uh, But I'm sure that 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 just the words D.C. sniper brings back a lot for you. It does. Uh, I was living in uh, Washington, D.C., not too far from DuPont Circle then. And I, I, at the time, there was a lot of, you know, uh, dark humor. And I said that most people, you know, people from 
outside D.C. would call with concern and say, you're scared. Like, no, I live in the District of Columbia. If they really tried it around here, the return fire from all of our gang members would, would wipe them out. Um, and, you know, they're, they're generally most of the attacks were kind of on the outskirts of the suburbs of the D.C. area. Uh, I do remember a friend calling me kind of in a panic after one of the attacks. And it did seem like they were coming with increasing frequency. Um, and I think a lot of folks at the time strongly suspected or feared that it was, was going to be uh, somehow connected to Islamist terrorism in some way. And it was, for lack of a better term, garden variety nuts. Um, and yeah, but you talk about this idea. You, when you said to me this morning, it's it's been 20 years, I would have said to you, oh, you know, it's about a decade ago. Right. Uh, maybe as time goes by, it seems to go by quicker or your perception of when things are uh <laughs> gets gets faulty as you get older but uh, it does not feel like it was that long ago it really was that and it is a little bit frightening about how someone who um you know wasn't operating with a with a head full of wiring the way you and I would consider to be normal uh had enough wherewithal to really terrorize the a large city for a long stretch of time thankfully we haven't had copycats we haven't had somebody who's decided to do all this but uh just about as bad a circumstance as you get thankfully it's over and i don't think uh i think for those of us of a certain age it will definitely grab our attention and uh keep us uh you know two words that are just now synonymous with the sense of you know ever present vague fear just from living in a certain area oh absolutely no going to get gassed <laughs> took took an ounce of courage uh it really did at that point uh, because that's where a lot of the shootings uh tended to happen not all of them and then it turned out not to be a white van but there that's what uh, one of the witnesses had said or maybe it was them that reported <laughs> to throw off the authorities i can't even remember uh, they had shot someone down in fredericksburg and so then they, the, the state police were stopping every white van between there and the Beltway, which, you know, the, the traffic is miserable anyway. But uh, that was just an example of, of how frantic everyone was to solve this case. And fortunately, they did. But uh, I think we had 10 people killed uh, eventually along the way and a number of people injured as well. It was a terrible time. All right. On to happier things as we uh, get to our good martini now. Uh, Jim and um, Josh Kroshauer, longtime um, reporter and columnist over at the National Journal, is now over at Axios. And he's a pretty straight shooter on this stuff. He will retweet to good news, bad news for both parties on this stuff. And today he's out uh, talking about how the momentum for the overall control of the Senate seems to have shifted at least slightly towards the Republicans. He looks at two races in particular, and we've looked at both of these in, in pretty good detail in the last couple of weeks. One is Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson seemed to be in trouble, and now that uh, the Republicans are hammering uh, Mandela Barnes on his no-cash bail plans and just being a radical across the board, uh, that is having an effect, and uh, Johnson seems to be ahead now. The other one, Pennsylvania, we talk about this a lot also, that seemed to be Fetterman by double digits. Now it's within the margin of error. Emerson has it recently within two points. And of course, Fetterman's health has become a factor. But even beyond that, the RNC is just pumping out John Fetterman clips of trying to empty a third of the prisons out. John Gabriel and I talked about this last week. And this crime issue is really working against the Democrats, as it should, given their position not only in the wake of the George Floyd death, but uh, just how some of these figures have been all along, like Fetterman and Barnes. And so, uh, Jim, uh, it's still tough math. It's getting tougher math for for the Democrats, though, too, because some of these juicy Republican pickups are looking much less likely at this point. 
Republicans still need to get at least one, and it looks like Georgia's probably the most likely option since Arizona's not working out. But at least uh, the odds are looking better than they were a short time ago, so we'll take it for now. Yeah, and I think the you know a, a column like that in Axios is a good and useful indicator that our instincts are correct. Um, I, I think you know people who have been listening to this podcast know. Um, that I have been kind of warning, you know, that uh, I wasn't going to worry about Ron Johnson until all the votes had been counted on election night. We went through this six years ago um, that basically he's a guy who doesn't poll particularly well and then does significantly better on election day. I don't know whether Wisconsin has a significant number of what you'd call shy Republicans voters or, or what the issue was. But, um, you know, I think it was, you know, some liberal magazine had put Russ Feingold on the cover uh, you know, under the headline, Mr. Feingold returns to Washington, just assuming that it was a done deal, that he was going to win. Well, no, Ron Johnson did that. And it looks like, yeah, there was a little bit of, there were some good polls for Barnes um, in the uh, earlier part of summer. In the past month or two, it's been pretty solidly Ron Johnson. Maybe you can find one or two that has Barnes up one by a percentage point or so, but nothing that would make you say, oh, we've got that one. Um, and, you know, just one of those things where Democrats always seem to think they've got uh, a state like, like Wisconsin in their pocket, and it is probably best characterized as purple. It's not a guarantee. And also, by the way, the governor's race is looking closer out there as well. In, in Pennsylvania, slightly different story. I don't think you can argue that Oz is ahead, but I think you can now say, in fact, I think there was a poll out this morning that had, or this weekend that had Oz uh, uh, just down by two, and it was not a, uh, a Republican-aligned pollster or something like that. I think the health issue really has you know, picked up speed and become a serious issue for Fetterman. I think, and I think this is one of those things where it's cumulative, like with each passing week that he's not making a lot of campaign appearances, that his campaign appearances are brief, that he's, you know, relying on it. I think what what initially had seemed like a manageable issue for the Democratic campaign with that big lead they had over Oz starts to look less and less manageable. Like what will happen, what will dispel this is him going out on a debate stage and looking and sounding, I'm going to say normal enough. You know, Pennsylvanians are not cold hearted people. I, I know a whole bunch. I married a Pennsylvania. They're you know they're they're not you know uh, going to automatically hate someone who uh, has has you know, suffered a stroke. But the problem, one of the big problems, is that the Fetterman campaign wasn't honest about it from the beginning. So there's always that question of like, what are you not telling us? What are you not showing us? Um, if he's you know if you're, he's doing as well as you say he is, why are we not seeing more of him? And then when you see him, it's pretty clear that he's still having some pretty significant. Um, auditory and and expressing his words and things like that so um i think you have you know what you know wisconsin probably you'd guess is either toss up to lean republican and i think pennsylvania is in the process of shifting from lean democrat to toss up that's pretty significant and as we've discussed on previous editions of this podcast i think georgia probably goes to a runoff those are probably the three that'll be most important uh don't sleep on nevada where uh, black salt's looking better and so you add all this up you know, I think it was um, it might have been at the end of uh, Josh's column where he said the range of outcomes probably looks like Democrats with 51 or Republicans with 52. Neither side's going to have a huge majority when all is said and done after the midterms. But right now, there's a little bit better chance for Republicans. And I think the conventional wisdom is uh, so conventional wisdom seems to change a little too slowly for my taste. Yeah, I don't want Democrats with 51, but if that's their ceiling, 
then we keep the filibuster. <laughs> that, that would be nice. But uh, I'm so glad you mentioned Adam Laxalt out in Nevada. That one slipped my mind when I was listing the pickup opportunities. He has been slightly ahead, but consistently slightly ahead. And the most encouraging part of those polls out in Nevada is that Catherine Cortez Masto keeps hovering around 40 percent, which for an incumbent, not good. Um, interesting note in the Fox News poll that accompanies the uh, Wisconsin story is that the enthusiasm gap in Wisconsin is, is something else. Uh, Ron Johnson, 68% of his supporters enthusiastic. Mandela Barnes, just 50%, down from 57% in August. So um, the, the crime issue, along with the others that we keep talking about, and we're going to talk about in a second here with, with gas prices and so forth, definitely a factor. And Republicans are honing in on those messages. And uh, the longer they can do that, and the more consistently they can do that, the better they'll be. All right. Uh, great to have Moink as a sponsor today. Love getting the Moink box. I love the steaks. I love the chicken. I love the fish. Everything you get in the Moink box is ready to go, and you need to just throw it on the grill or however you do it, and it's delicious every single time. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat just tastes better and it tastes like it should, because the family farm does it better. And the Moink difference is one that you can taste. You can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent as well. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash martini right now, and listeners to the podcast get free filet mignon in every order for a year. Man, I buried the lead there. That's one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash martini. That's moinkbox.com slash martini. Jim, on to our bad martini now, and maybe the Army needs to send out Moink boxes as recruiting incentive uh, because our bad martini here is bad not only for the Army but across the armed services. This is from Fox News. Um, Here's what it says. The Army fell about 15,000 soldiers, or 25%, short of its recruitment goal this year. Officials confirming that on Friday, despite a frantic effort to make up the widely expected gap, In a year when all the military services struggled in a tight jobs market to find young people willing and fit to enlist. While the Army was the only service that didn't meet its target, all of the others had to dig deep into their pools of delayed entry applicants, which will put them behind as they begin the next recruiting year. The worsening problem stirs debate about whether America's fighting force should be restructured or reduced in size if the services can't recruit enough and could also put added pressure on the National Guard and Reserve to help meet mission requirements. We've certainly seen that before. According to officials, the Marine Corps, which usually goes into each fiscal year with as much as 50% of its recruiting goal already locked in, has only a bit more than 30. The Air Force and Navy will only have about 10% of their goals as they start the new fiscal year. The Air Force usually has about 25%. And already you've got the Secretary of the Army talking about drawing on guard and reserve if they need to. So, Jim, we've got a um, significant manpower drain. They're blaming it on on uh, people taking other jobs in the job market right now. That might be part of it. I think there are other factors here as well. But if they don't fix this soon, we're going to have a big problem. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like everybody can point to some factor that they will, and it probably is a contributing factor. I think on the right, you hear a lot of people talking about, the, in, and you know, legitimately raising the, the, the prospects and the evidence that, quote unquote, woke culture is uh, affecting the military. 
Um, all of the things that are designed to talk about, oh, we're a more inclusive military, we're a more diverse military, you know, kind of gets away from the core purpose of the institution, which is to kill people and bomb stuff. That, that this is, you know, in the end, um, the enemy does not care how, uh, how tolerant your forces are, how racially diverse, how ethnically diverse, how trans accepting your forces are. In the end, the enemy only fears, you know, what your forces can do to them. But I also think there's an aspect that, like, probably is uncomfortable for both parties to examine too closely. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about the end of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. And besides the uh, national humiliation that it represented, besides the loss of life at the Bagram airport... Uh, besides the sense of betrayal, the sheer number of U.S. Uh, of Afghan allies who had left behind, uh, besides the image of the Af- of the Taliban running around in uh, you know various equipment they had seized that the U.S. had abandoned, all of that is is exceptionally you know um, I-, I think it hit Americans down to their core. It was a national humiliation. I think seeing the reaction of the U.S. veterans, and in fact, we talked about you know Operation Pineapple and all these other Pineapple Express. And all these other independent efforts by U.S. veterans to get uh, Afghans out to not abandon them, I think a lot of people wondered, like, if you know, vet- and veterans themselves grappled with this question of, you know, the U.S. had been there for twenty years, everyone who had served over there had poured their heart and soul into that mission, and then all of a sudden psh, they pulled the plug, and you end up with watching the guys you had been fighting, the Taliban, celebrating their victories. Now, obviously the. Uh, U.S. strike on Ayman al-Zawahiri, the then you know head of Al-Qaeda, after about a, a couple of months ago. That's a little bit of a consolation. But I think a lot of people wonder, was it worth it? Was was all the blood, treasure, sacrifice, time away from families, birthdays missed, loved ones lost? You know, Was it all worth it? And I think a lot of people say no. And I think that makes it much harder to persuade people to accept the sacrifices inherent to military service if they feel like this they could go be partake in a mission really over the course of their entire career over a 20 year span and at the end of it feel like they don't have much to show for it and at the end the bad guys won anyway jim i think you put your finger on on some of the biggest issues uh i know the pentagon wants to blame job opportunities in other places but you know we've had hot job markets other times and we haven't seen recruitment like this so I think the aftermath of the past 20 years is part of it. Wondering, you know, whether you know joining the service is the right thing to do at this point. If they even join the Guard and Reserve, what will that result in? And of course, you know, especially from conservative families, which often make up a, a, a significant portion of the armed services, what's going on with the culture of the military right now, and and what statements and priorities is the Biden administration doing there. So a lot of factors in play here, and I'm not sure there's any easy answers, which is really not good news. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now and uh, on to gas prices. You talk in your morning jolt today about flying out to Los Angeles. And again, if people follow you on Twitter, you had a lovely uh, photo of Nakatomi Plaza. I had asked it, maybe you can find 74 cent gas out there again, like you could find in Die Hard. No, but you did find $7 gas uh, and uh, near $7 gas. And so you talk about why that is specifically in California and and the impact that's having on the country. And then you go on to point out that um, we might be kind of snowballing here to significantly higher gas prices again, despite how much Biden and Ron Klain want to take all the credit when they when they come down a little bit, uh, because they're going to stop selling the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, oil here at the end of the month. And so that's going to then lead to uh, things um, 
jumping back up. We don't know what Russia is going to do. And so that's obviously a factor. And then, as you also point out today, especially from you know what the Wall Street Journal is reporting, OPEC is seriously considering not doing what Joe Biden wants them to do, which is increase production. But instead, they're looking at potentially a significant historic decrease in production to jack up the price of oil above $100 a barrel again. So, uh, Jim, how ugly is this going to get? Pretty ugly. Now, I should point out the $7 a gallon uh, gas station that I saw. I was near the airport, so maybe it's one of those gas stations that's trying to grab people um, but you know, as they're trying to return a rent a car and they have to, uh, uh, you know, fill it up the tank. Otherwise they'll get charged a great deal. So, okay. You know, maybe, maybe that one's, but the other ones that I passed were in the high sixes. Now, again, this is downtown LA. This is getting out of Los Angeles airport. So maybe again, maybe it's unusual. LA is one of the most expensive corners of California and California is more expensive than the rest of the country. But if you look at the nationwide, you know, average price for a gallon of gas, it is at three seventy nine. I believe. I'm going to show, make sure. Yeah, three seventy nine, and uh, that's eleven cents higher than it was a week ago. Biden every once in a while would pop up on Twitter and say, "It's been you know forty some days since we've had declining gas prices." Yeah, but remember, you're declining from the all time high, right? So by itself, you know, like a little bit less than the all time high is still not good, and there's just a lot. Uh, a lot to digest here. I, I almost said an, a lot to unpack here, but I actually did that after this trip. Um, so for perspective, like Biden was exclaiming how high gas prices in California were last November, right around a year a year ago, and they were four fifty a gallon. Well, <laughs> you know, we're still we're still well above that in California, and of course the national average isn't that much lower than this price that he thought was was ludicrously expensive. He loves to blame everything bad that happens is because of the Russian invasion. Everything good that happens is because of him. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve is doing, and we, we like, oh, okay, the you know they're they're taking a lot out. No, they're really taking down a lot. We are down to, I believe, uh, twenty one days. Um, here we go, twenty two days of supply. You know, if we our high was more than 50. All right. And this is obviously meant to be used in the case of a national security emergency. And I think, you know, you talk to people in the industry, experts, they'd say, well, it's really good to use if, you know, God forbid you got a, a, a hurricane, you know, something where it's a uh, it's a disruption. But, you know, it's going to be a short lived disruption. It's not going to go on for months and months or something like that. It's not meant to be used as a get the president out of jail free card when he's in political trouble. And that is what's kind of happened here. And just so just for perspective, I mean, like, you know, some of these figures just jump out at you. Uh, Biden has released more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve than all previous presidents combined. And he's released more than 30 percent of what was in there on the day he took office. That's down by a third. That's a lot. And you'd think, well, with all that we're releasing. Well, okay, we, you know, it, it'd be worth it if like, okay, well, gas prices are back to normal. But as I left, they're not back to normal. They're slightly less bad than they would have been. And depending on which study you look at, eh, maybe it costs, you know, maybe it helped 17 cents. Maybe it helped 42 cents. The average has come around around 38 cents a gallon. So we're putting ourselves in really deep doo-doo for the benefit of 38 cents a gallon when it's still this particularly high. Um, now, you look at this like, okay, you know what you could do? You could increase production. And Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming um, has this op-ed where basically everything you're doing with the drawing down of strategic petroleum reserve, if you maximize production, you could get twice, you know, you get, you could get the same amount of oil in half, half his time. And oh, by the way, you create jobs. Oh, by the way, you do good stuff. Um, and oh, by the way, you don't end up tapping a strategic petroleum reserve that's supposed to be there for emergencies. 
So, and the other thing is you mentioned that OPEC thing. I understand the OPEC meeting has was suddenly canceled. There are a lot of people who think that the ominous noises coming out of it uh, in the days leading up to it were kind of the warning and that they may have had the effect that they wanted. Unsurprisingly, uh, Russia wants everybody else to, you know, reduce their, their production. Um, Biden, you know, remember, went out to meet Mohammed bin Salman, gave him the fist bump, kind of kissed his butt, kind of, you know, forgot everything about saying, you know, we're going to turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah. I, I don't, you know, I think Biden had to do that. But all he got in exchange for that was some vague promises. And then Saudi Arabia reduced production shortly after that. So we've got nothing. We, we, he got absolutely taken to the cleaners. And I don't think we can count on OPEC to increase production. Obviously, we don't want to take any more oil from Russia. And so the only serious option is to increase production here. But as we've seen, in terms of sheer acreage of land and um, permits and things like that, the Biden administration has been, you know, um, uh, you know, beyond sluggish, uh, uh, you know, the all time way lower rate than anybody going back to like, I think, early Nixon or something like that. So it's just a utterly infuriating all around and no sign of relief anytime soon. And I remind you, like, this is October. This is not supposed to be peak driving season. Gas prices are usually declining all through the fall. But uh, nope, guess that's not happening, huh? This administration is just rudderless. He's got one card to play. And unfortunately for him, it's the two of clubs. Uh, with this uh, situ- situation with the with the look at that strategic two of clubs. How you like them apples? <laughs> That's right. So unless there's four clubs down on the table and you're playing Texas Hold'em or something, uh, that's that's probably not going to work too well. Jim, totally unrelated. I'm reading this uh, excerpt from the uh, Wall Street Journal that you've uh, pasted into the Morning Jolt today. The U.S. has asked OPEC Plus to pump more oil to help bring down the price of gasoline. OPEC Plus accelerated some production cuts. Are they a streaming service now? ESPN Plus, Disney ah. Plus, the late and not great CNN Plus. I mean, what's with the plus? I'm You're sure there's a good answer. Me but. to the punchline. <laughs> uh, yes, that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that is, I guess, the idea is like you know, you used, there was OPEC, and then Russia became a major oil producer, so they're kind of in with it, even though they're not officially a member of OPEC. And uh, yeah, but it's it's all bad news. Oh wow like the p5 plus one is that the of, yeah. of oil okay you're kind of like is this a math test that's six just call it the p6 <laughs> amazing well jim welcome home glad to have you and uh we'll do it again tomorrow see you then see you tomorrow greg jim garrity national review i'm greg Columbus of radio america thanks so much for being with us today do subscribe to the three martini lunch podcast if you don't already and please tell a friend about us as well thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews please please keep those coming they're a huge help to us also find us on your home devices all you have to say is play three martini lunch podcast follow us on twitter he's at jim garrity i'm at dateline underscore dc have a great monday and please join us again on tuesday for the next three martini lunch. Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn joins me to discuss the explosion of violent crime in Memphis and many other U.S. cities and what she says she is doing about it. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll also explain how a Biden crony is getting rich off our open border policies and the Justice Department is studying white supremacy in video games. Don't miss it. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.